I think there are two big obstacles um, to having a healthy relationship with God. I call it the double R obstacles. That is, many of us may think that a relationship with God is all about report cards and being in a religious bubble. Let me explain with two examples. Now, during the last school holidays, my oldest son had uh, one of his closest friends over from high school. Now, his mate lives in Holsworthy. Do you guys know where that is? Out southwest, quite far. We live in Concord. Anyway, he left home at 8 a.m. to arrive at our place. Uh, we live in Concord. He got off at North Stratford Station for me to pick him up at 9.48. So it took him like one hour and 50 minutes to get there by train. I felt bad for the guy. His name is Abraham. So I decided to drive him home in the afternoon in order to save him some travel time. In the car, he was sharing about how he was going to attend a Catholic youth retreat the next week. And um, <clears throat> I just thought I'd ask him randomly, as I do. So Abraham is a 12-year-old boy. What do you think is the meaning of life? Um, you know, how to win friends and influence people. And he said, well, basically, life is all about doing whatever you want in life. And then I knew he was a Catholic background, so I asked him, so how does God fit into the meaning of life for you? And he said, well, you can live however you want as long as you don't hurt anybody. And then if you're a good person, then God will let you into heaven. In other words, he felt that a relationship with God was built on performance-based self-worth. If I do good, then I'll feel good, and God will let me into heaven. He thought a relationship with God was all about having a good report card. My son's friend is not alone in this. In fact, all religions have in some way, shape, or form, apart from Christianity, they have a good report card view of having a relationship with God. If I'm, God, if I'm good, God will let me into heaven. If I'm bad, then I'll go to hell. Now, in the second example, during my early years of ministry, I ran a kids' club in Surrey Hills and Redfern. And um, I did that on Fridays and Saturdays, set up an urban mission, worked with members from local churches in the city to reach out uh, to street people. Now, when children from broken families and street people showed interest in finding out more about Jesus, I would invite them along to attend church at the Chinese Presbyterian Church, which was a middle-upper-class church filled with, as in the name, Chinese people. So it was an interesting social experiment bringing Indigenous people and people from lower class who couldn't even read and people that were former junkies along to service. <clears throat> now, after a few months, the English Ministry Committee asked me to present a report of how the ministries were going and a senior elder questioned me and he said, James, if you start bringing lesbian mothers with their children and people from different backgrounds, how are we meant to deal with them? We need training before we can better relate with these types of people. And my response was, look, the only training we need is to just love them. In other words, the elder was more concerned with how can we keep our safe religious bubble from people different from us so we don't get infected. And the point is, when we have a wrong understanding of what a relationship with God looks like, that is, we think it's about having a good report card, then we've lost the plot. Also, when we have a wrong attitude towards sinful non-Christians by staying in a safe religious bubble, 
so we don't get infected, we've definitely lost the plot of what a relationship with God looks like in Christian community. Now, it's in this context that we come to today's Bible passage in Luke chapter 15, 1 to 7, whereby Jesus seeks to address these issues that he is actually facing with the report cards and the religious bubbles, which we'll get to in a minute, by answering the question, how does God feel about us and what has he done about it? And we will now consider how Jesus conveys God's heart towards us. So if you can please keep your Bibles open as we go through the passage together. How God's heart towards us and what he has done about it. Firstly, he relates personally to rejected rebels. And we'll see that in verses 1 to 2. So please keep your Bibles open. Secondly, he explains by a parable that God reaches and rescues in verses 3 to 4. And thirdly, we will see how God reunites and rejoices in verses 5 to 7. So firstly, God shows us through his son, Jesus, that he relates personally to rejected rebels. Reading with me in verses 1 to 2, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It was an offence to the teachers of the law and Pharisees, that Jesus associated with men and women who by the Orthodox were labelled as sinners. The Pharisees gave to people who did not keep the law a general classification. They were called people of the land. And there was a complete barrier between the Pharisees and the people of the land. To marry a daughter to one of them was like exposing her bound and helpless to a lion. The Pharisaic regulations laid it down. When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, trust him with no secret, do not appoint him guardian of an orphan, do not make him the custodian of a charitable funds, do not accompany him on a journey. A Pharisee was forbidden to be the guest of any such man or to have him as his guest. He was forbidden so far as it was possible to have any business dealings with him. It was a deliberate, pharisaic aim to avoid every contact with people of the land who did not observe the petty details of the law. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law thought a relationship with God was all about having a good report card. And they wanted to stay in the holier-than-thou safe religious bubble. Now, how do we do this today? Maybe we don't do this consciously. Maybe we we do it subconsciously. For example, how many ex-gangsters are sitting here this evening? How many ex-junkie prostitutes are present here? How many of us here are struggling with homosexual feelings or struggle with drug? alcohol, gambling, or porn addictions, but we don't want to bring it up. We don't want to talk about it for fear of judgment. Or how many of us here may, want to, may have had sex before marriage, but we feel too ashamed to bring it up to seek support at church? How many people have you met outside of church and encouraged them to hear of God's love that did not fit the church scene. Now, a few years ago, I ran a Bible study at my place in Concord, and I had an interesting member of our group who used to run nightclubs. 
And because he used to run nightclubs, he would meet a lot of people in the underworld. And one night at Bible study, he said to me, all right, James, I'm just wondering, would you be interested in meeting one of the heads of the Chinese triad with me so you can talk to him about God's love? And I said, sure, not a problem. Even though I must admit, internally I was thinking, is today the day I get stabbed? They're going to know my name. They're going to know my number. But I thought, no, God loves him. Give him a crack. So I met up with him in a Burwood cafe. He started sharing with me his life story. Then he took off his shirt and he showed me tats all over his body. And he went through every single stab wound where he got stabbed for all his fights over the years. So I thought, all right, I'm going to jump in. So I took off my shirt just a bit. No tats, but I've got a defibrillator here. And then I shared with him how I almost died, but God saved my life and shrunk my heart. But more importantly, I shared with him that God sent Jesus to die for my sins and his sins, and that God loved him and wanted a relationship with him, and that Jesus is stronger than death. And I encouraged him to think about it. He talked for two hours. I gave him my number. I said, you're welcome to have dinner whenever you want. He hasn't taken it up. I invited him along to church as well. But it's actually seizing the opportunities to talk to anybody from any class, whether they're on the right side of the law or the wrong side of the law. God loves us all. When we go down the path of thinking a relationship with God is all about having a good report card or being in a religious bubble, we can have either a feeling of profound shame and isolation as a closet sinner, or we can become very arrogant and exclusive in the eyes of the world and not talk to anyone outside our immediate church Christian circles. So how does Jesus respond to such spiritual arrogance and moral apartheid? And Jesus proceeds to tell three lost and found stories in Luke chapter 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, to reinforce the point, the same melody with different instruments, that a relationship with God begins with God's seeking love for sinners and the reconciliation of sinners to God. And today we'll be focusing on the first of three parables, the parable of the lost sheep in verses 3 to 7, beginning in verses 3 to 4. Jesus highlights that God is a God who reaches and rescues. Reading on in verses 3 to 4, it says, Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, we here today live in an urban environment. Now, if Jesus were to ask you and I that question, we just go to Coles, just buy some lamb, off you go. So if Jesus says, look, if you've got 99, you lose one, I think in the urban environment we might go, meh, 99's close enough. If you're Asian, you might think, nah, 99's not good enough. You have to get 100%. You need all 100. Not trying to be racist here. But Jesus was appealing to the sense of value and responsibility of ownership in an agrarian culture. And it would have been unheard of for the shepherd not to go out and look for his lost sheep. They would be hard-hearted 
and cruel. Even if the shepherd was only able to bring back proof of a dead sheep, he would have fulfilled his duty and showed that he valued the sheep enough by going out to look for the dead sheep. Perhaps Jesus was also reminding the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that they should have known better from the Old Testament that God was already described as a shepherd king who seeks out his own, as it says in Ezekiel 34, 11 to 13. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search out for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and all the settlements of the land. And also in verse 16, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Now, also in Psalm 23, you remember that famous line, the Lord is my shepherd. In John 10, 10 to 11, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus identifies himself as that good shepherd. Now, I have a confession to make. My bedroom is hardly ever tidy on my side, um, much to the dismay of my long-suffering wife. The only times I tend to be motivated to tidy up my room is when I'm procrastinating in doing an assignment, if relatives visiting from overseas are sleeping in my room, or if I have lost something important. I wonder if this resonates with you. A few years ago, I lost my wedding ring. I forgot that I took my wedding ring off when I went to the gym to do some weights, because you know you can get calluses underneath when you're you know, trying to punch it out. Anyway, I've, maybe not. Anyway, <clears throat> I forgot that I put the ring in my gym bag, and I searched everywhere for it. For a few weeks, I checked every orifice of the house, tidied up my room to epic levels. I was consumed with thinking about every possibility of where it could have been misplaced. During this time, I prayed especially hard that God would give me special revelation where to find it. Now, to give you some context why I'm thinking about this so much is because my wife is black belt, fifth Dan, uh, Taekwondo, and you can join the dots, what would have happened to me if she knew I had lost the wedding ring? Anyway, I ended up telling her, and thankfully she was quite merciful. And then just the day after, I found the ring in the wedding bag, uh, in the gym bag. And I just thought, oh. But the feeling of joy and relief is something that is burned in my mind and in my heart. The point is when we lose something precious or valuable to us, we do whatever it takes to find whatever we have lost. We do whatever it takes to reach and rescue what we have lost. I'm sure we all have stories here of stuff that we have lost and hopefully found, whether it be a lost wedding ring, 
I lost iPad. I lost mobile phone. Who's lost their mobile phone? Yes. I had a shock. I was talking on my mobile phone, thinking I lost my mobile phone, saying, hey, I think I've lost my mobile Oh, I'm, oh. Until I've got ADHD. Anyway, um, <clears throat> we've all lost different things. If you have kids, you'd experienced the lost school hat, the lost school jacket, the lost drink bottle. We do whatever it takes to find what we think is precious. And God has done that with us. We are precious to God. We are valuable. And God will hunt us down to bring us back home. On May the 3rd, 2007, do you remember Madeline McCann? She was age three back then. She went missing when her parents, Jerry and Kate McCann, went out for dinner at a Portugal resort. It was the most reported missing person case in modern history. Whatever you think happened to Maddie McCann, her parents have done whatever it has taken to reach and rescue Maddie. They have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to get private investigators and campaigning to find her in over seven countries spread out over three continents. They have gone to the ends of the earth to find her. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like for them to live like that. But you could just have a slight inkling of their level of love for their daughter. I mean, just last week, my second child, Zoe, went away for three days to a year six school excursion. When my daughter Zoe was missing from home for three days, something was missing in all of the family members. We missed her terribly. We were only more settled and content when Zoe finally came home. Now, when the shepherd went out and had 99 sheep but lost one, he was not content with the one missing. He was only content when he had all 100. Such was his love and loyalty to every single one of his sheep, even the one that was helplessly lost. Even one lost is unacceptably too costly to ignore. God is a God who will scour the ends of the earth to find his lost. Even here at Chatswood Church of Christ. God desires every last person on earth to be accounted for so that no one person is not accounted for, that no one is left behind. This means every last person in your workplace, at school, at play, in Chatswood, in Sydney, in New South Wales, in Australia, in the world, no one is left behind. Now, I've encouraged my 11-year-old and 8-year-old still in primary school to run a Christian lunchtime group to find the Christians and reach out to those who do not yet know about Jesus. And they've had anywhere from two to eight friends come along to the group once a week. And they sit down, they read the Bible, and they encourage these girls to find out more about Jesus. Recently, my oldest daughter shared how one of the members of the group never had a Bible but because she had been joining this group off her own bat, she purchased her own Bible and started reading it. And Zoe's been able to go through it with her about God's plan of salvation. 
Let me make this point very clear. Christianity is not about making a bad person good. The heart of Christianity is making a lost person found. The heart of Christianity is not about making a bad person good. The heart of Christianity is making a lost person found. And this is the point Jesus is making to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. When he had tax collectors and sinners gathering around him, he showed us that God is not about report cards and religious bubbles, but rather he bursts that bubble by showing us that a relationship with God begins with God reaching out and rescuing us. God is not distant, no. Rather, God is keen to hunt down and find everyone of us who are helplessly lost for himself. God is a God who relates personally to rejected rebels. Amen? What does this mean for us today? Maybe you're sitting here this evening feeling lost internally, wondering, what am I doing with my life? Where am I with God? Well, know this. God is not distant. He sees our state of lostness, and God is absolutely committed to reach out and rescue you. It is God's initiative to bring you back to himself. Be comforted. Perhaps tonight through the Bible passage read, or even part of this sermon, you're realising that it is actually God reaching out to you tonight and seeking to rescue you. Maybe you might be changing your mind and thinking, well, maybe God hasn't completely written me off. Well, if this is for you, then realise that God is not only seeking to reach out and rescue you, but we see in our final point that God is a God who reunites and rejoices. In verses 5 to 7, in other words, God is keen to bring you home to himself. Looking with me in verses 5 to 7, Jesus says, And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And the point is, God is our great shepherd king. And God is the one who does the heavy lifting. He will carry us back home to heaven on his back. Now, the nature of sheep that we may not understand in our urban environment is that sheep are scared animals. And they don't like to be individualistic. They like to stick together in a flock. They, they think safety in numbers. So it actually would have been highly unusual for this sheep to actually have been lost. So commentators have said, look, <clears throat> the, the way sheep generally get lost is if they get injured or if they're crossing a stream and the shepherd jumps in first and all the other sheep jump in, the weaker, younger sheep, some of them get stuck and they get dragged down the stream. Then the shepherd jumps out to grab them and bring them back. But even as the shepherd walks along and the sheep walk behind him, sometimes they'll get caught and injured between the rocks. So when this shepherd found this sheep, a shepherd normally has a jar of oil that if the, if the sheep is injured, they would pour oil on to heal up the wounds of the feet of the sheep and pick them up because the sheep could run away. So we would bind him up, put him on his back, 
You're not getting away this time, mister. And they'd take the bar bar home. When I first set up an urban mission in Surrey Hills, I didn't know what was going to happen. We got some ham sandwiches, coffee. We went to Central Station. We just tried to find some street people or anybody who was there who was hungry and would want some companionship and where we could show the love of Jesus. I met this man by the name of Robert Crocus. He was quite smelly. His hair was all, his, he had a very hairy beard, very tattered. And as he spoke to me, he said, yeah, he'd live rough on the streets and at night time he'd jump on the train, get on the country train up to Newcastle. And that night he was near the country terminal and I sat down and had a good chat with him. And I began to share the gospel with him after I heard about his life. I said, Robert, through everything you've been through, have you ever been told that God loves you? He said, no, never. So God wants a relationship with him. And I explained to him what Jesus had done for him. I said, what do you think of all this? He said, I'm going to have to think about it. And then I probably said something that may not have been quite helpful, but I said, look, we don't know when we're going to die. If you get hit by a bus, then what are we going to say to God? Anyway, for him, he said, that's a good point, actually. He said, what do I need to do now? So he prayed the sinner's prayer. He gave his life to Jesus. His sadness actually turned to joy. I said, come back to where we meet for prayer. So I introduced him to all the other Christians that went out that night. And I'll never forget, when he got up and he shared what he had done in giving his life to Jesus, everyone rejoiced. Everyone was so happy. This guy who once was lost is now found. And I saw he was cold, so I gave him my flannel shirt. And we put him up in a hotel for the night, and the next morning I saw him, his flannel shirt was gone that I gave him. I said, where did it go, mate? He said, oh, there was another girl staying at the hotel. She didn't ever have that shirt, and now I follow Jesus. You taught me that Jesus wants us to give to those that have less, so I gave her the shirt that you gave me. I went, what? So he came to church for a while. He couldn't speak English. We tried our best, and then he disappeared again, went to Melbourne, visited churches down there, and would come back now again. The point is, even somebody that society might think is not significant is very significant in God's eyes and is a point for great rejoicing in heaven. So how can we apply tonight's Bible passage? Firstly, if you have not yet done so, repent, that means turn your life around, turn your life away from self and towards Jesus, to trust Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Now back to my son's friend that I drove home that day. I asked him, Abraham, do you think you're going to go to heaven? He said, yeah, I think if I'm good enough. I said, Abraham, you have to be perfect to go to heaven because heaven's perfect. Do you think you'll get in? Are you perfect? He said, no. I said, sin is like poo. Small or large amounts, it's offensive. If I put a little bit of poo in a glass of milk, would you drink it? He said, no. I said, right. Telling a little lie is like two grams. You murder someone, that's a few kilos. Put a few kilos of poo in a glass of milk or two grams, you're not going to touch the stuff. Whether you lie or kill someone, God doesn't want to have a bar of it. It's offensive to him. I said, Abraham, do you know why you came to our place today? He said, why? I said, because you know my son. 
You think if you didn't know my son, you'd be at our place? I don't think so. We came through relationship. Yeah, because you think I'm a pedo or something. You know what I mean? It's just not right. I don't know who this kid is. I said, the only reason we can go to heaven is if people know Jesus, God's son. And when we have a relationship with Jesus, we have a relationship with God. And I said, Abraham, if you want to become a Christian, remember A, B, C, then receive. He said, what's that? I said, A, admit that you have sinned before God. I said, sin is when you miss the mark and when you miss the point. And the point is life is not all about you. It's all about God. B, you believe Jesus died in your place for your sins. C, you commit your life to Jesus and then receive his Holy Spirit. I said, what do you think, Abraham? He said, I'm not too sure. And then I said to my son, if you're ever interested, talk to my son. No pressure, Jeremiah. But you you pray with um, my son if you're ever interested to find out more or consider following Jesus. Have you recognized that you are lost without God? Because that is the mandatory point to becoming a Christian. God does not save good people. He saves lost people. Are you conscious that God has been proactively looking and searching for you? God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross. He got his hands dirty to come amongst us, but he got his hands nailed on the cross to shed his blood on your behalf. God loves you to death, but more importantly, he loves you to life so that you can have a new relationship with God. Receive his help and the offer of forgiveness this evening, if you, if you have not yet done so. I do not assume for one second that everyone sitting here automatically trusts in Jesus and Lord and Saviour. And if you have not yet done so, I encourage you, respond to God. He wants you tonight. Do not delay. And the second application point is rejoice in God's passionate desire for everyone. Now, in Jesus' day, the most hated people were like the tax collectors. I think, yeah, today we might hate the ATO, but not to the level of the tax collectors in Jesus' day. But I reckon the equivalent today would probably be parking inspectors. Yes? Confess now, everyone. Put your hand up if you have a... Decide, yes, for your, thank you for your honesty there, brother. Anyway, talking about parking inspectors, I met one. Because when I got sick 11 years ago, actually one of the perks of getting very sick was that I could get mobility parking. Uh, because I'd get very tired and I couldn't walk. So I saw that was my ray of sunshine in that dark period in my life. So this parking inspector came up to me because I was an outreach pastor at Bill Presbyterian Church. And he came up to me and he said, Excuse me, sir, can I please check a look, have a look at your mobility parking scheme to see that um, it's in fact you, that photo on your licence, please? I said, sure. So I showed him and he said, so why do you have this? I said, I've got a heart condition, I've got dilated cardiomyopathy. And he said, oh, my sister has that too. I said, oh, you're all right? He said, oh, it's pretty tough. And I said, so, um, so this is my trick. Anyone who's an islander, you just go cut to the chase after you find out their name. You just ask them, how are you going with the Lord? Because a lot of them have been to church. So I just asked him, I said, oh, what's your name, Sam? So how are you going with the Lord? And then he went, oh, oh, bro, bro, you got me. Oh, oh, bro. Oh, you remind me of my dad. And I went, how do I remind you of your dad, man? Look, he said, my dad's Chinese. And I went, what? He's a trilander. 
He's a Chinese Islander. I went, bro, what's he? he said, oh, my dad's been nagging me to go back to church. And I said, we've got church right here, man. Come along four o'clock. Reconnect with God. He loves you. He loves you a lot. Stop running away from God. Then I put my hand on him and I prayed for him. And then he broke down in tears. And then I thought to myself, and if anybody saw me next to a parking inspector and the parking inspector is crying, you'd think there is something seriously wrong with his picture. But that is the power of God's love on this man's life. He reconnected with God. He joined. We all celebrated together. God was passionate for Sam, and Sam continues to follow God, and I pray that he will continue to the very end. God is passionate to see everyone come back to him. I gave a talk at Beverly Hills Girls High School. I'll never forget this year eight girl came up to me after. She said, Mr. James. I said, yes. She said, I come from a Muslim family, but I prayed the prayer. I'm following Jesus now. And I said, how do you feel? She said, it's great. I'm forgiven. I said, welcome to the family. I said, you keep following your parents while you're growing up, when you're old enough to move out. But in the meantime, come, come and join us at the Christian lunchtime group. The strict Jews said, not. There will be joy in heaven over a sinner who repents, but there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. They look sadistically forward, not to the saving, but to the destruction of the sinner. Rather, by God's grace, may we rejoice in the salvation of sinners. And the final application point is reflect God's passion for the lost world. Now, as I've mentioned in the interview before, my wife and I were preparing to go with pioneers to go to Israel. But before that, we had to get trained up in Melbourne to see that we could become pioneers missionaries. And then as we were going through the training, we went through the core doctrines or beliefs of what it means to be a pioneers missionary. And they said, read through that list and see if you've got a problem with any of it. And the first point was, a pioneers missionary will be someone who has a passion for God. And then he said, does anyone have a problem with any of this? And everybody went quiet, except me. Mr. Annoying. And I said, yep, I've got a problem. He said, what's your problem? I said, well, you said the missionary, he has to be passionate for God. But that's focused on me. I know doing Christian work that my passion for God comes and goes. But God's passion for the world never ends. I said, if you're focusing it on my passion, then I'm either going to be dishonest when I'm on the field and just make it out like when I'm passionate for God, when I'm not, when I'm discouraged and depressed. But if we focus on God's passion for the world, that will keep me going because I know God is faithful. And that's why the last point is to reflect God's passion for the lost because you may not even care sitting here this evening that God is passionate for the world. But the point isn't whether you care or not. The point is God cares. God cares for the lost people. Get with the program and reflect his passion, not our passion. What I know long enough, long enough in life is that our passion is too inconsistent. We fail, but God never fails. So to make sure whether it is here in Chatswood or your sphere of influence that no one is left behind, may the parable of the lost challenge us, all of us, in joining in God's passion for the world. Think of people that have been part of your congregation that have wandered off 
maybe because of illness, maybe because of depression, maybe they've had a crisis of faith, maybe it's because they felt it's too hard to sit through a very long sermon like the one James Fong is giving tonight. Hunt them down because God loves them. What is your care factor? You know people that I will never meet and I will meet people that you will never meet. We need to work together as a family to get on board with God's mission. According to Jesus in this parable, every person who does not yet belong to him is filed under the missing persons report. And Jesus has a voracious appetite to see that every single soul is accounted for. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, I want to encourage you to seek out every last person here on earth. Come to know the Lord. Let's pray.